0: been journeying through scriptures that kind of trip us up we've been calling them scriptural speed bumps and this is definitely one of those texts and i could have expanded how much time i stood up there and read scripture to you by reading where this appears all four times in the bible it appears twice in the letter to ephesians once in the letter to Colossians, and once in First Peter, in some variation of this, which basically says somehow, some way, that wives are, wives are subservient to their husbands. And many people have probably, raise your hand if this is the first time you've ever heard this. <laughs> See, most people have heard this. And some of us may have had it used against us, and others of us may have perhaps used it against someone else, we don't know. However, I want us to be comfortable with addressing scripture, and the church does not, the church, the United Methodist Church, does not believe in complementarianism. You've probably never heard that word before. Complementarianism is a theological doctrine that states that men and women are not equal in marriage. It states that men are in a position of leadership, and women are in a position of service to that leadership. And we do not believe in that. In fact, our book of worship, under a service for Christian marriage, stipulates in the instructions to clergy, in paragraph two, the following. Both words and actions consistently reflect the belief that husband and wife are equal partners in Christian marriage, and that they are entering into the marriage of their own volition. Our understanding of holy matrimony is... That it is two people seeking to, uh, by their own free will, enter into this covenantal relationship by which they are equal partners. That they enter in not with the understanding that one is serving the other or that one has authority over the other, but that they are creating a new life together and they might have differing responsibilities within the household they create. However, they are not being called to specific roles. Now, many of you, if you look back into your own childhood, perhaps something that one of your parents did in your household was different than what somebody else's parent of the same gender did in another household. When I was growing up, my father did the laundry. My father did the laundry because if he didn't, then we all had shrunken pink things to wear. (laughs) And my father didn't really enjoy going to work in shrunken pink things, and so he did the laundry. Yesterday, I was doing some premarital counseling for a lovely couple, and we were talking about this very subject, that the church understands that they are entering into a new facet of their relationship, and that when they start their household together, that they will need to figure out what roles each one will fulfill, and what duties that really is. What duties will you take on? And some of that may be because you're gifted in a particular place. Some of that may be because you are simply willing to do what needs to be done, and sometimes it's because the other person is not willing to do whatever it is. And so that's how some people find themselves in charge of landscaping, and some people find themselves in charge of car maintenance, and some people find themselves doing things within the house or outside the house just because it's based upon what you negotiate together that you're willing to do. And so the, the bride looked over at the, at the groom and said, yeah, you do the laundry. And, he, and she said, you kind of seem to like doing the laundry. And I said, well, great, because somebody has to do the laundry. You might as well enjoy doing the laundry. And so they have worked that out. Now, that doesn't mean that he is less of a man or less of a husband or less of a human being because he's done something that somebody else might say is for women. And so he's, empow- he's empowered in our understanding of the marital covenant to do what needs to be done and to do so joyfully without any fear that anybody will condemn him for it. In fact, I would not have known that he does the laundry, joyfully or not, if they hadn't disclosed that. And it's not really anybody's business how you divide the duties in the home. As long as the duties get done, that's your business. And so we don't understand the same way that the scripture is here. Now, we also don't believe that you can simply go, well, that scripture's wrong, the end. Moving on, we don't believe that. We have to address it. In fact, we have to address it because it's in there four times. So how is that okay, that this text is in there and yet the United Methodist Church has a different understanding of marriage? How is that okay? Well, let's talk about how this came to be in the Bible. It came to be in the Bible because things got messy right when something goes wrong humankind is known historically for making laws and rules and regulations to keep it from going wrong again so here's what happened right about somewhere between 0 and 6 AD that's as close as we can pin it down because they weren't as good at records as you think they would have been back then when they had to do them all by hand of when Jesus was born and then he lived 30 years At the age of 30, he came out and was baptized by John the Baptist, which is what you can see depicted in our window here. And then he entered into three earthly years of ministry. And during that time, he traveled all around the northern kingdom of Israel, the southern kingdom of Judah, all around Galilee, finally arriving in triumphant victory into the city of Jerusalem on Palm Sunday. And then the church records his final week in Jerusalem, the final week of his earthly life and how on Thursday he initiated Holy Communion for us, on Friday he was was sacrificed on the cross, betrayed by his best friends, and then he was in the tomb on Easter Saturday and rose triumphantly on the day of resurrection, Easter Sunday. We record all this, and most people are somewhat familiar with the flow of this. What people don't often start to pay attention to is what happened after Easter. So after Easter, how many days did Jesus walk the earth? 40. Karen, you already know the answer. (laughs) 40 days, right? He walked around 40 days, and we could have a whole other sermon about why the number 40 is so cool, but 40 days he walked around, and then he ascended, and he promised that within 50 days of his resurrection, so 10 days after he ascended, the Holy Spirit would come. We know this day as Pentecost right that's when you all look fabulous and red. Pentecost that's the day when we recognize the Holy Spirit has come and has decided to dwell and stay with us especially once we're baptized dwell within us and be at work through us in the world we understand that and so the end right we could just cut the Bible off at acts of the Apostles and we would all be done however we know that the book doesn't end there that more things happened wonderful things started to happen Jesus Christ, the resurrected, came to a man by the name of Saul and had a transformative encounter with him and renamed him Paul and made him an apostle of Jesus Christ. He started his own ministry, his ministry traveling around as he was a tent maker and planting churches all along the edges of the Mediterranean in the Roman Empire. And as he started to do that, he would move on to the next place and plant a church and things would go wrong at the last church right? You've never left home and had anything go wrong, have you? So things would go wrong. And when he was gone, they would send somebody to ask him questions. They would send letters to where they knew he was traveling. And sometimes he would come back and visit them, or he would send someone back to talk to them. Sometimes Timothy had to do that. Or he would send them a letter. His letters have been preserved in the scriptures, right? That's one of the things that we have. Paul's letter to the church of Rome. Paul's letter to the church of Corinth. Paul's second letter to the church of Corinth, because the church of Corinth had a lot of issues, right? So we we have these recordings there. And if you go back through them, Paul is often addressing issues that they discover. And sometimes they get afraid because someone died. I thought Jesus was coming right back. How could someone die? What's going to happen to them now that they died? And Paul goes, it's okay. It's all right. Jesus is going to resurrect them. We will be resurrected. It will all be okay. And they went, "Oh, thank God." Right? And then they moved on to the next problem. And so this is the kinds of things that happened. Paul was always triaging issues for them. And his main impetus was just hold it together, people. Hold it together. Jesus is coming back. I wish he would come back very soon because we have to hold it together and we're just going to we're just going to hold where we are, right? Stop all of the drama and everything and just hold it together. Jesus is coming back. Now, the example that I gave at the last worship service was sometimes children's time feels like this, right? Sometimes I've had as many as 30 children up here, and there's a lot of cacophony and chaos and beautiful children of God, and you're like, I just need you to hold it together. We're going to pray, and then you're going to go to children's (laughs) worship, right? And that's kind of how it is. You're just trying to triage and hold some things together, and so we've already talked in previous sermons about how sometimes Paul, sometimes Paul said something that wasn't meant for everybody, but was meant for a moment. Right? It was meant for a moment in time. And we, over time, became literalists. We became obsessed with it. it literally says that you have to do this, and so you have to do it. Which is interesting, because how many of you have ever had pork barbecue or a cheeseburger? Right? It literally says you cannot do that. But it's okay we still love you and you have great taste in food, right? So we, we understand that maybe it's not literally how we read the Bible anymore, right? It's not literal. So how do we understand four places that say that wives must be subservient to their husbands, subject to their husbands? How do we understand that? Well, part of the reason that it started to exist is that Paul was preaching something very potent. Paul was telling people that Christ had changed everything, That with his death and his resurrection, that he had set the captive free. That he literally fulfilled Isaiah. You know, the scroll that he read in his hometown synagogue and they all tried to run him off a cliff. That one. That instead of simply giving them verbose words, that he really truly did change things. And so Paul was preaching, and you remember this out of Galatians, where he writes to the church, there is no male or female. There is no slave or free. There is no Greek or Jew. Christ is the great equalizer. We have all been raised up, and we are now on par with one another. And in a society that was very stratified and hierarchical for people who had been stepped on and cast aside and broken down and told that they were not good enough simply because they were born different, this message was incredible. It was empowering. And then couple that with the presence and the movement of the Holy Spirit, and people started to lose their minds. They literally felt so empowered that they started saying, I don't have to be a slave anymore. I don't have to be a slave. If you are my brother in Christ, then you should not want to enslave me. We should be equals. That's what Paul said. And people would say, well, maybe Paul was just saying that to Galatia just to calm them down. However, Paul's words resonate with a different place in the scriptures. Paul's words resonate in the gospel account of John chapter 3 verse 16 that says that God so loved the world all of us not just those who were in a position of power and authority not just those of one gender or the other not just those who were